Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So the topic today is uh, longevity, like how to sustain our practice. So having longevity in our practice. How many people notice that their practice goes up and down? Really good and not so good. You know, I think I think um, I speak on this topic maybe once a year, and it evolves for me. Like I see in in into my own neurosis a little bit deeper, and see what. Um, what types of things help with my practice? I know this was this was the one reason why I moved to retreat centers because my practice wasn't either consistent enough or stable enough, and I got really just pissed off. <laughs> I was like, ah, I gotta do it, so I moved. And then I realized after living at the retreat centers that I didn't need to live at retreat centers. I was just I didn't have the teaching, you know, I wasn't skilled enough. Um, and so um, there's practices that I rely on now, and there's some of them are traditional. Well, the, um, there's different styles of traditional ways to motivate ourselves for the practice. I'm going to focus on one that's really helped me. Some of the more traditional ones... Um, from Tibetan, I talk a lot about the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma. Um, how many people remember that teaching? Can anyone name any of those things? Maybe. Faith is great. It's not one of them, but. <laughs> this precious life. Yeah. Precious birth. Yeah. Impermanence. Impermanence. Keep going, Don. Come on, Don. Karma. Karma. Yeah, karma. Wow. You can do it. Give somebody else. The last one's dukkha. Yeah, it's not out there, right? So this is this is a a very traditional one, and this precious human life is not only just that we're living but all those things that make up our ability to practice it's so rare and so unbelievable if you really think about it that we're healthy enough we have a healthy enough mind body we've met the teachings we actually have motivation we live in an environment that allows us to to study uh, we live in a country that allows us to practice for now <laughs> you know we don't know like I said, I think I just talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Tibet never thought we're never going to be able to t practice Buddhism, you know. Tibet never thought that, right? So, um, so that's a very common one. Um, also, taking refuge, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Emphasis here on Sangha, our spiritual friends. So when we lack motivation in our practice, the Sangha, 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 Sangha. So incredibly important. Spiritual community, spiritual friends. Incredibly important. 
So maybe I'll go back to those in a little detail if we have time, but I want to focus on something else um, today. Focus a little bit on my practice and just my, my experience. Um, is that when my practice falls off, I could pinpoint it. So part of it's actually part of my, my practice. The, my motivation moving into it and why I'm doing it is not exactly right. And then the second piece is when I get caught up more in the world. So there's, an, there's a practice piece and a world piece. World piece. <laughs> it's a lack of me seeing world piece. Um, as far as the, the actual practice goes, and maybe you can relate to this, but it's when I want something out of my practice. It becomes selfish. If I can put one word to it, is when my my practice becomes selfish. It's like a relationship. The moment that you want something from it, you know, when we say I want, I want this out of it, you know, then it becomes a little sketchy. <clears throat> but also, like my intention to meditate. So when the intention to meditate or to do the practice is for my life to get to change in some way, to get something out of it in some way. It is an impermanent intention. And what happens there is that once I get what I wanted out of it, so I'll put, maybe it's, um, put a general thing, like, because it's so big now, like meditation for stress relief, for example. If we're meditating for stress relief, nothing wrong with that. But what happens when you don't feel stressed out? What happened when it works? <laughs> you don't need it anymore, right? But when I'm suffering, I'm an incredible practitioner. I'm really, really good. I'm, I'm just, I'm on it, you know, because I, I, I trust it. And so when I suffer, I depend upon it really strongly. The hardest time to practice for me, and maybe you can relate, is when everything is good. We call this good samsara. Good samsara is very dangerous. When we're having a good samsara, everything looks really pretty and nice. You're within the palace gates. You're Buddha before he left the palace gates. No reason to practice. No old age sickness or death. No heavenly messengers have come to visit you yet. So this, so this is something to look out for. The, the alternative to that, and what I'm going to be focusing, uh, focusing our, um, the meditation that we're going to be doing, the opposite of that is to arouse, of course, bodhicitta, which is the true altruistic. I say true, it's more of the ultimate. You can meditate for whatever you like, it's okay. But a more ultimate truth reason is to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Ultimate truth is because it's true that you're not free until all beings are free. This, this motivation and this intention is never ending, right? This intention that I vow to free all beings and all beings, all suffering beings and all suffering beings are, are numberless. And so it, it'll, it'll like never happen. <laughs> we can never free all beings. You know, the famous story of Chinrezig the Buddha of compassion, 
she freed all beings from suffering, and then she was resting in the Dharmakaya, resting in the enlightened state, and all the lights of suffering beings had vanished. And in an instant, all these lights of suffering beings manifested once again. And all the realms were filled with suffering beings once again. And she cried a tear and created Tara, the deity of Tara, because she knew she needed help. And then she sprouted a thousand arms, and that's a thousand arm ten resig, and then she dove back into the hell realms to free all beings. So this is a bodhisattva path. So this is never-ending compassion for all beings. The second way that I see myself moving off course is when I move into attachment and aversion. So if this is the more compassion side of, of generating compassion with the practice, this is more when I lose wisdom. So attachment and aversion, of course, of course come when we see things as um, permanent, you know, labeled as their functionality, and we are attached to that functionality that we label. To an interdependent, empty from its own side, interdependent, impermanent, and empty object, the imputation on top of that as a concrete thing causes attachment, aversion, suffering. So th this I notice if I get too caught up in worldly stuff, I just forget about the importance of the practice where it looks like the world is more important than my practice. Like my energy is it's not it's it's not even near where it needs to be. Like I'm just too weighted into that. Because it could feel very of course we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to survive, we need to eat, all all those things. But sometimes if it's all consuming then we forget the wisdom. And so, this takes more insight. So, of course, we talk about the two wings, you know, the two wings, compassion and wisdom. Compassion and wisdom, the two wings of the bird flying towards enlightenment. They both have to be equal for us to stay, stay true to the course, you know. So, and they both, of course, lead to one another. So, we need that insight to say, okay, these are, this is exactly how things are. This is how suffering arises, and then also the compassion to keep us to have fuel for the practice. So I'm going to go through a, a bodhicitta practice. So this is one of the first things in the Tibetan tradition, if, if, there, is, if there is some falling off of the practice, immediately turning up the volume on on bodhicitta. And the bodhicitta practice is usually taught in two different ways. One is Tonglen. Many of you are familiar with Tonglen. This is um, taking in and giving. Tonglen, taking, giving. And the other one is a seven point cause and effect method. And this is one that we're going to be talking about today. 
it's a little harder sell than uh, the tough sell here in the West. And you're going <laughs> to you're going to find out why in a moment. <clears throat> it's a beautiful, amazing practice. When I think about these practices, as we're reading again, Atisha traveled for 13 months through India into a realm of Indonesia to find a master that that had these teachings that I'm going to share with you. And the teachings for Bodhicitta are so incredibly valued. You know, they're valued more than any other of the of the of the cities. You know, the clairvoyance and telepathy and uh, you know omniscience and breaking stone with mantra and diving into the earth and <laughs> multiplying your body. All this, all the cities. They say that Bodhicitta is the ultimate city, the ultimate, 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 ultimate. You know, there's a great story of a master and coming into a village and the whole village could not wait for this master to come. And the master arrived in the village and they said, you know, what are your powers? What, what can you do? Can you levitate? Can you do this, do that? And he said, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. They said, well, what can you do? And he says, oh, I have bodhicitta. That was his superpower the sincere desire to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, <laughs> compassion, superpower. It's like that's what he had. <laughs> so Atisha stayed for 12 years to study Bodhicitta until he, re, until he realized ultimate Bodhicitta. So there's relative Bodhicitta, which we're going to, be, going to be practicing today, and then ultimate Bodhicitta, which is the, this realization so it's not cultivated anymore. It's called cause and effect because the first six ways are the cause to the ultimate, to realizing the ultimate bodhicitta. This is the cause and effect method. So the first thing that we do, the preliminary, this is considered a preliminary practice, and the preliminary of the preliminary <laughs> is one of the Brahma-viharas, it's equanimity practice. But in Tibetan, the Brahmaharas are the four aspects of the heart. So we focus a lot on metta, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and the last one's equanimity. But in Tibetan, equanimity is not only equanimity of mind, but literally seeing all beings as equal. So to kind of prime the heart for the practice, we look at all beings as equal. And we meditate for a few moments and think that Friends can turn to enemies. Enemies can turn to friends. And strangers can be turned into loved ones. Yeah, complete stranger could be the love of your life. Depending on, on your makeup, this could happen in like two days. <laughs> and then could, and then could be an enemy in like another week, you know. <laughs> so, but we we meditate on this, just the impermanence of this, seeing all beings as equal. And of course, we have special place in our hearts for our loved ones. Like I love you over here, but ah, you not so much. So equanimity. So the actual first piece of, of the seven-point cause-and-effect method, and this is why it's a little tough sell, um, 
and there's two factors of making it kind of tough here, but is to recognize that all beings at some time or another have been your mother in the past. And just kind of, just go with me on this <laughs> for now. If we could do it, it's incredible. It's, an, it's really, really, really incredible. Usually this is taught over months, and I have like three minutes for this part because I actually want to do the meditation, okay? Because for, for, this to, for this to kind of sink in and you meditate, and I'm going to send this, I'm going to send you this teaching and whatnot on the email and, and all that, okay? But we think about there's a possibility that we've been incarnating for eternity, Right? Um, and many Eastern sages say this, but one thing that they talk about in Tibetan to, to just allow this possibility to arise is the very, what was, where were you, or where were you, or what were you, the moment you became you in this form, this fetus that turned into a baby. There must have been a moment before that before that moment. And so, opening to the possibility that there was a moment before that and before that, and if we really look at this, we can't find the beginning. And there's a possibility that we have, we have been going through this cycle of birth and death for what they say, countless eons. And every time we're born, we're born to a mother. Every time. So they're saying that if you kind of do the math, <laughs> and we're all part of this one succinct kind of consciousness, that all beings at one time or another have been your mother. So if you can kind of just roll with that, it's very, very precious. So then, then you notice, and this is another part of the hard sell, is that in some tradition, mothers are, are really put on a, on a pedestal just innately as a culture. But sometimes our earthly mothers, uh, maybe that's not the case in your life experience here. So that can make, make it difficult. So like, love all beings like your mother. You're like, I hate my mom. You're like, well... <laughs> <clears throat> But if we look at it as a mother, as a mother in, in energy, the energy of a mother, absolutely incredible. I tell the story, I've told this here before, but it was a really precious moment. I was taking a hike, I was living at Sunburst Meditation Center, this beautiful land. I was taking this hike, and I turned a corner, and I was suddenly very close to a deer. And I was like, oh, what a beautiful deer. And the deer didn't jump away. She just stood there. I was like, that's really weird because we're really close. <laughs> and um, it jumped away for a couple, like two little jumps, and then stopped and looked. It kind of nudged towards me, and then did two, two little jumps. I was like, what's it doing? And I looked closer, and there's this little tiny baby, little baby right, right behind it, little baby in the grass. I mean, it must have like just been born, you know, really close, like days old. 
wasn't standing up, you know? And this mother, like the, the most dangerous predator on the planet, this human being was standing in front of it. And she was risking her life for this baby. So touching, so incredible. So we, we think like this, this mother energy, it's so incredibly precious. And so we think all beings, all beings, like we call it mother sentient being. So if you look, if you look at an ant, you say, oh dear mother sentient being, mother sentient being. It changes the relationship with the ant so, a little bit, like maybe, maybe even this small creature, you know, has been so kind to me. So this is another thing that we contemplate. So the kindness of, of the mother in, our, in these lifetimes. So we contemplate this, and then the next thing, and I'm going to lead us through this so you don't need to remember all the steps, but the next thing we think about is these numberless beings have been so kind to me in the past, I must repay the kindness. They've been kind to me just for the, giving me the life, just that, even that peace. I must repay that kindness. Then the next piece is that they've been loving. Not only did it show me kindness, but that motherly love. I must re repay that motherly love. So I must show them not only kindness, but send them metta. May they be happy. Just like the mom wants the offspring to be happy, would even risk their life for it. We call this affectionate love. But then when we look out, we see because of delusion, there's suffering. So we see these mother sentient beings, but we notice that they're suffering. So then we generate great compassion. Great compassion. Oh, I must, this leads to the, this what they call this extraordinary attention. <clears throat> I must, I see this compassion, I must free these beings from suffering. I have to. And when we generate this peace, we're not only generating the wish, we're generating the responsibility. So we think it's absolutely up to me. Nobody else is going to do it. I'm going to do it. I have to do it. I have to free all beings, all these beautiful mother sentient beings from suffering. It's up to me. And the only way to do that the only way for full omniscience, for, for this ability to do it, is to attain enlightenment. It's the only way to do it. If you think of the Christ, the Krishnas, Muhammads, all this, they are, still, they are still generating enlightened beings thousands of years later. Thousands of years later, they are freeing suffering. Like clockwork. Still, to this day. And this is part of the intention piece, because... Our intention, if we're not careful, if we have a really limited view of our intention to practice, it can be very limited. 
But see how infinite when we attain enlightenment for the benefit of, or, or even to the practice to attain enlightenment. You know, I'm like, enlightenment or bust, you know, like, there's no in-between, you know, it's not like, like I say, I'm not here for a better dream. I don't want a better dream. I want to wake up. Like you could, there's an infinite ways for a better dream. I don't want a better dream. I want to wake up. Only then can we free others from the dream. Only when we wake up. So this is they call the extraordinary intention. Extraordinary too because it's not only for ourselves, for everyone, for all beings. Then the, the last piece is the realization. So the, this is the effect. So that's the first of the cause. The effect of the first six is ultimate bodhicitta. This is the realization of bodhicitta. And we've seen countless examples of when somebody has ultimate bodhicitta because ultimate bodhicitta makes no sense at all. Ultimate bodhicitta is Christ on the cross being nailed to the cross unjustly and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It comes from this otherworldly place. It's Mother Teresa standing in the middle of a firefight, literally with bullets flying by and telling both sides to knock it off. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. It's Amma, the hugging saint, literally licking the maggots out of a leper's wound with her tongue. We have videos of this. It doesn't make any sense, right? This is ultimate bodhicitta. This is when service it just oozes in love and compassion. It's the full realization of our interconnectedness. So we're going to go ahead and go through the practice today. So go ahead and find a posture that will support your practice. So first, allowing to reach into the tender part of your heart. Maybe notice where you feel kindness arise. And you could stimulate this by thinking of a moment in time when you experience compassion or kindness. It could be something simple like petting your pet, a smile, a hug. Just see where you feel that in the body.
And then next, allowing yourself to contemplate. Contemplate seeing all beings as equal. And maybe notice in your own life experience these fluctuations of titles where beings have become friends, maybe after once seeing them as an enemy. Maybe noticing the opposite of a friend, moving away from you in life. And also noticing the neutral person can become a loved one, could become family. So seeing how these labels, loved one, friend, enemy, see how they interchange, how they are in flux, in flux and permanent. And then next, allowing the idea to arise, just the possibility for now, it's possible that we have been reincarnating for countless eons, it's possible. And that because of that, all beings, at one time or another, have been our mothers. And see if you can expand this idea to, to include all beings. So human beings have been our mothers, but even the birds in the sky, the fish, 
animal kingdom, even insects. Next, allowing to come to mind the kindness of mother sentient beings, the kindness of a mother. We see this in the animal kingdom, of course, this infinite love that we see all around. Mother's work their entire life with the intention to caring for their young. So you can think about the sacrifices and the commitment of this mother in energy. As that arises, noticing this kindness, setting the intention that I must repay this kindness. They were so kind to me. I must repay that kindness back. Not only have they been kind, but they have been extremely loving. Focusing on this love aspect, this deep motherly love. Mother sentient beings have been so kind, so loving. I must repay that kindness and love with great, great, great love myself. Not, not I need to, but I want to.
I want to repay this love, but the reality is I look around and these beautiful mother sentient beings are suffering. I see their suffering and I have great compassion for them. I have great compassion, so I make the vow. I will attain enlightenment for the benefit of all these beautiful mother sentient beings. take on that responsibility to do so and I have absolute complete faith that I can. Nothing is more important than this. I will stop at nothing until I achieve this enlightenment for their sake. May all beings without exception be happy and free from suffering. Uh, well, I was sharing with uh, Casey that I also have a challenging relationship with my mother. So for me, I didn't get any of those like 
to relieve stress, and then once, if it works, and the stress is gone, then what? So, when you clarified the point again for me, I require patience, we meditate truly so that all beings achieve enlightenment. That is great, and it makes me feel really happy. So, thank you for that reminder. Thank you for teaching that to me. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.